Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. However, in 2005, an industry poll was taken. This was disc jockeys and promoters and owners and what have you, and they were asked, what is the greatest live performance ever? Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show, like the Ohio State University, on the Rock School Radio Network. She is the wife over there. What's your name, honey? The Tammy Burns. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you know, it's July, and again, usually I'm doing interviews during the month of July, but nothing. COVID has shut everything down. I haven't even been contacted by publishers, which is weird because I am forever being sent books and things like that. I probably get 15, 20 a year. So nothing happened. I finally get to talk about things that happened in July. And so Saturday, the 13th of July, 1985, live aid, the concert occurred. Did you see it? Yes, I did. I did not. What? Because I'm an idiot. I lost track of the date, and that summer I was working at three radio stations, the college station and two professionals. Oh, excuses. And I just simply had the whole day set aside for sleep, food, talk, shut radio station down. Make so, some money. And I missed it all. I think I might have caught the very tail end of it, sort of the everybody sing We Are the World mm-hmm. or everybody sing Do They Know It's Christmas. And, and I have some stories about that as well. The idea of Live Aid came out of the brains of Bob Geldolf of the Boomtown Rats and Midge Yore, who played with Thin Lizzy and Ultravox. He was with Ultravox at the time that Bob Geldolf really came up with the idea. They co-wrote Do They Know It's Christmas, and Mr. Yur, Midjur, also uh, produced the song with Trevor Rabin of Yes. Okie dokie. He also was in charge of producing Live 8 on the 2nd of July, 2005. But we're going to stick with Live Aid right now. Can you tell me the two places where Live Aid occurred? Mm, Do you know the new two places? I think it was London. That's one. Everybody uh, gets this wrong. Australia. No, no, no. Well, there was there was a, a, a okay, concert somewhere in Australia. In Africa, right? No, no, no. Somewhere here in the United States. Oh, New York City. Then that's what everybody thinks. No, it was Philadelphia. Oh. It happened in Philadelphia. But as you said, Soviet Union, Canada, Japan, Yugoslavia, Austria, Australia, and West Germany all also had concerts. It was carried on multiple networks and multiple cable stations, yeah. MTV and ABC here in the United States being the biggest one, and the BBC and BBC Radio being the big ones over there in the UK. It is suggested that 190 million people watched it. If you did the mathematics at the time, that was an estimated 41% of the Earth's population. Oh my goodness. And I missed it. 
So I'm going to play some music. All the music on the show today is all going to be from Live Aid. My question to you, Tammy Burns, mm-hmm. with that many people watching, right? with that much da 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 it must have made a billion dollars, right? Yes, it did. Actually, no. There's a lot of downside to Live Aid, and I want to get that out of the way first so I can go on and talk about the music and what happened. Oh. But when we get back, I want to tell you how much money it raised, what that really means, and all blah, 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 blah. So, got to play songs once again from Live Aid. I'm all right. Kenny Loggins here on Rock School. Kenny Loggins, once again, all music on the show today is going to be from Live Aid because the show is about Live Aid. Now, I told you 190 million, now that's an estimate, people watch the show worldwide. Mm -hmm. That was 40 to 41% of the Earth's population. They had to raise unbelievable amounts of money. Yeah. How much money do you think was raised at the end of the 16 hours of concerts? Take a swing at it. Uh, at least a billion dollars. Wow. 56 million. After the Wait sa- a second. I know. After the sale of t-shirts and sale of this and sale of that and the DVD and blah, 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 it is now suggested... That Live Aid only raised, and I say only, this is still a substantial amount of money, but if 40% of the United, not the United States, the world, is watching, $127 million isn't all that much money. I actually checked it. It's fairly insignificant compared to what even single artists are getting today. It says here that Lady Gaga, since she has started touring, has made over $950 million dollars. To which you say, well, you're not adjusting for inflation. Okay, let's take that 127 and triple it. Mm-hmm. So now it's about, what, 375 It still doesn't come up. It's less than half of what Lady Gaga's making. So it looks like a lot of people wanted to enjoy the music, but didn't want to give money. And as we get into it, we're going to talk about Bob Geldof dropping an F-bomb on the BBC. Yes. Because during the concert, he even knew, look, we're not making much money here. What's going on here? Okay. Was it successful? It depends on what you suggest successful means. Did it raise an unbelievable amount of awareness? Yes. Did it get worldwide amnesty groups uh, to send money and to support the country of Ethiopia? Yes. Did it turn all public attention to the famine problem in Africa? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did it solve the problem? Did it even make a dent in the problem? Probably not. There was an Ethiopian dictator at the time who was Mingatsu Hale Meriam, and he stopped all grain on the dock and disallowed it to be distributed. 
Why? Because it's a little more complicated than this, but here it is in a nutshell. He wanted, rather than grain, he wanted money. Mm -hmm. He wanted the cash. He would then distribute the cash. When he got the cash, he used it to buy guns and weaponry from the Russians for a war he was waging to separate tribes in his country. There's even a photo of Geldof with this fella. I'm going to try to do it again. Mengatstu, I think is how it's said. And you would think that, well... Geldof was an unwilling participant, whereas that's absolutely not true. He was asked about it, and his quote was, I'll shake hands with the devil on my left, and on my right, I will get help to the people we are meant to help. So he did know about it, and he was warned, look, you you really just don't want to give money to this guy. Let's get the UN in there. Let's get, you know, feed the children in there. Let's create an infrastructure. And he sent the money over, and it just didn't happen. So if monetarily you look at it no it wasn't very successful if you look at the idea of the world put its eyes on this country and began to help then you can consider it a success okay 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 dire straits sting money for nothing live aid here on rockstar Talking about Live Aid today, okay, let's take it back. How did it get started? What exactly was the germ to make Bob Geldof contact all these people and get going? Remember, it didn't start with the concert. It started with the song, Do They Know It's Christmas? Mm -hmm. Why? In October of 1984, images started to leak out of all these starving people in Ethiopia. The UK's BBC sends in Michael Burke, B-U-E-R-K, Michael Burke, and he does a news report on the 1984 famine, and it absolutely captivates the UK. Here is about 20, 30 seconds of that actual report. Our correspondent Michael Burke has been back to Coram after four months, and he found the situation far worse. Dawn. And as the sun breaks through the piercing chill of night on the plain outside Coram, it lights up a biblical famine, now in the 20th century. 
This place, say workers here, is the closest thing to hell on earth. So there you have it. Donations begin to pour in to save the children because they already had a direct line into Ethiopia. Geldof is so moved, he contacts Midge Ewer, who was with Ultravox at the time. Okay, why? Well, the two of them had worked on a 1981 benefit show called The Secret Policeman's Ball for Amnesty International. Geldof uses his connections, and on the 25th of November, 1984, in Sarm West Studios in Notting Hill, London, they put together, Do They Know It's Christmas? Simply calling his friends. Yes. Get over here. Are you in town? Come sing this song. And again, the song was written by uh, Geldof and Ewer. It was released four days later. Now, I don't know if you know much about the music industry. Four days? Mm-hmm. That's, that's ridiculous speed. Obviously, they had to get it out for the Christmas season. The single, nobody got paid. The single was to raise 70,000 pounds. It raised 8 million wow. pounds. Wow. So... Let's 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 continue this ball. Yeah. Let's continue this going. Keep let's it make going. sure right, 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 right. And you would think it was Geldolf, or you would think it was your that said, "Okay, let's do a concert." Nope, it was Boy George. Hmm. I'll tell you the story when we get back. Here's David Bowie live, "Modern Love" from Live Aid on Rockstar. <laughs> Stay in, get things done. Okay, so Do They Know It's Christmas has become a hit and money is pouring into the fund. The story for the concert goes this way. Boy George was touring with Culture Club, and you probably know that he and Culture Club drummer John Moss sang on Do They Know It's Christmas. Boy George had one of the solo parts, yes. and Moss was in the entire chorus at the end while they were all singing. Mm-hmm. They were on tour, and they were finishing with one of those six-night deal at Wembley And on the last night, there were a bunch of musicians, because it was the last night of the tour. I mean, everybody came to support him. This is wonderful. He brings them up on stage, and they sing, Do They Know It's Christmas? George comes off stage, contacts Geldof, who wasn't there, and says, You need to have a concert. You can raise so much money. There is so much roaring about this. Right. So Geldof says, Yeah, you're completely right, but it's got to be the biggest concert possible. So he contacts this guy named Harvey Goldsmith, who's going to be at Wembley Stadium, and then Bill Graham here in the United States would take care of Philadelphia, and tells him all these bands are in. All these bands are ready to go, mm-hmm. except they weren't. Gold, Geldof 
freely admits that he lied himself into the concert. I would have done the same thing. He con- it, it was said that he contacted Bowie, and he says, you got to sing, man. Queen's in. Yep. And Bowie went, oh, Queen's going to play? Oh, yeah, yeah. Freddie Mercury's going to play. And then he would call Queen and say, you got to sing. Bowie's in. Okay. Oh, really? Bowie's in? And he said he played these people off of each other and hit them just at the right time with just enough public support. Nice. And the show was put together. How about that? Who's Woo! listening to us here on the Rock School radio show, ladies and gentlemen? W-A-B-L, Amit, Louisiana. Spectacular. Back in a minute here on Rock School. I am going to talk to you a little bit more about the bands and the concerns there were getting this thing up on a satellite and things that happened. And we all probably know the Phil Collins story that he played at both of them. However, in 2005, an industry poll was taken. This was disc jockeys and promoters and owners and what have you. And they were asked, what is the greatest live performance ever? The winner came from Live Aid. It came from Queen's 22-minute set. And furthermore, you I know you've heard it. Freddie Mercury always did this little bit with the audience mm-hmm. during his live shows where he would sing something and the audience would sing back, Ayo, and the audience Ayo. would come back. Exactly that. And he would come up with these absurd you know, lines of music and they would come back. Yep. They called that because it was Queen was gone. And they show up, and they're huge. And by the way, they're not the first ones to sort of come back. The Who, and also there was a reformed Led Zeppelin. And a lot of people wanted to raise money for this. So Freddie Mercury hits those notes. That's what makes its way out. And it is starting, or was, called, I guess today as well, the note heard round the world. So for the sake of argument, I will start with that A.O. bit of his right into Hammer to Fall. It's Live Queen from Live A's on Rock School.
Coming into the bottom of the hour way late. I'm Joe Burns. You are. Tammy Burns. The thing about Live Aid, it was up on satellites. And I know by today's standards, throwing something up on satellite, who cares? Mm -hmm. Your phone goes through a satellite. The thing was back then, you didn't have all the bandwidth. You didn't have the speed. You could also use undersea cables. Oh, man, you're crazy. No, I'm not. <laughs> there are under... Look it up. There are undersea cables. And the problem you had with Live Aid was sometimes the video would go on the satellite, the audio would go on the cable, mm -hmm. and verse visa. And one time they got it all mixed up and lost some of the who. The reason that Mick Jagger and David Bowie didn't perform Dancing in the Streets uh, live was because of this very problem. Really? And I'll tell you exactly they what knew that it, is. They knew about that before going on? I, I'll be honest with you. Live shows, and I've done a jillion of them, live shows, things are just going to go wrong. Get ready for it. Get ready for gotcha. it. I mean, we all knew what was going to happen. It's just things go bad. Just hang an, on and do it. An entire section of Paul McCartney's uh, Let It Be is dropped because his mic didn't work. Why? Because, it depends on what you read, a fan knocked out a cord, a somebody did this, or what have you. Right. And people go ballistic. You know, where is it, where is it? And they fix it and... You Back go it on. Comes. That's yeah. right. July 13th. These are the rock and roll dates for seven days and 70 uh, seconds. July 13th all the way through July 19th. You got Monday, Tammy. Go. July 13th, 1985. The Live Aid concerts in London and Philly. July 14th, 1967. The Who starts their first headlining tour in America. By the way, Herman's Hermits open up. July 15th, 2012. Size Gangnam Style video is posted to YouTube. July 16, 1966, Cream is formed when Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, and drummer Ginger Baker play together for the first time. July 17, 1995, Carol King's album Tapestry becomes a diamond album selling an official 10 million. July 18, 1991, the first Lollapalooza concert takes place. And July 19, 1966, 50-year-old Frank Sinatra marries 20-year-old Mia hey. Farrow in New York. The marriage lasts two years. Way to go, Frank. Okay, great. Here's what was supposed to happen. Now, most people know the idea of David Bowie and Mick Jagger. David Bowie performed live, but what he wanted to do with Mick Jagger, Mick was going to be in America, Bowie was going to be in London, and they were going to sing Dancing in the Streets, and they would simply trade off. Nice. The problem is, again, the technology at the time, depending on how the signal got back and forth, <laughs> created a lag. Little and, delay, huh? Right. And sometimes the lag was two seconds, three seconds. It still happens today. My son, it, it's COVID time, so he sits up in his room, and he's got his girlfriend on his phone. Mm -hmm. She was someplace where there was bad uh, Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. So she was on a six-second delay Wow! to us. And that's what happened here. So then the decision was to, we were going to have Mick Jagger sing his part, and then Bowie sing his part, and somebody would edit it together. Or Mick Jagger would, would deal with the seconds and all that, and they just finally said, the heck with it, got together and performed this video. And that was what they offered up to Live Aid. Not live, but the technology of the time just wouldn't do it. It's Dancing in the Streets. Okay. It's Mick and David here on Rock School.
All right, coming into the second break, in terms of television, at least 95% of all stations ran either all of it or part of it. And I know that sounds, come on, 95% of all stations? Let's remember what year this is. I mean, we're back in the mid-1980s. So you only had so many cable channels. Mm -hmm. The networks were still ruling the roost. There wasn't 9,000 streaming services. Right. It says here the BBC ran it all on TV in mono. However, if you listen to BBC One, as in the mic, mic, BBC One, BBC Two. BBC Two. If you listen... Listen to BBC One, you got it all in stereo, all commercial free, which had a downside as well. Because what was to happen? The two shows started about 90 minutes off of each other. Okay. And the thought process was that you got to change out the bands. So one band in London finishes, the next band in the in Philadelphia kicks it up. Yeah. Then the next band, the next doesn't that sound great? It sounds awesome. Sort of stair stepping it the way up. Right, right, right. It got off almost immediately. Why? And said, well, because people ran long, people ran short, it took yeah. too long, you know, we were running into we're human. golden time I and gotcha. such. MTV ran the whole thing here in the United States. Mm-hmm. ABC paired up with them. Here's the problem. They sold advertising to pay for the tech mm. costs and so People who watched it on MTV and such said, this is a lot of commercials. You're showing me a lot of commercials. Yep. The thing about the BBC is they were commercial free. But since there was such downtime, there was a ton of yakety, 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 yak. <laughs> and people bugged that as well. ABC made a spectacular problem. What they did is they decided to choose which bands were the most popular so they recorded them, and the idea was to run them later in prime time. Mm-hmm. It was a 16-hour day. Right. The problem was if you're recording a band, but you don't want anyone to see it, so you can do it later. Yes. What you're doing is leaving a space while the band is playing that you're going to show later. Yeah. And there's supposed to be a band in the UK that you can cover that. Mm-hmm. And if they're not there... What do you do? Wow. Who knows? Uh, Both concerts went on simultaneously, obviously. And all told, about 16 hours of music and chat. And that wraps up that little bit. I'm going to play for you, and I'll bleep it, Bob Geldof's F-bomb on the BBC out of this. Go ahead. Tell us who's listening to this Rock School radio show. KRSC, Claremore, Oklahoma, Roger State University. You bet you. Back in a minute here on Rock School.
out of the break, why was Bob Geldof concerned? Well, about midway through the concert, now he's in London. About midway through the concert, he looked at the amount of money and only about 1.2 million pounds had been given. To him, he's shaking his head going, are you kidding me? Right. I wrote a song that made 8 million pounds. What's wrong with mm. you? And and I hate to say this, but we have the same thing today. My students wouldn't pay for music if their life depended True. on it. And I think that's what you had. A lot of people, hey, this is a great concert. Could you give us 10 bucks for it? No. No, right, I don't think right. I'll do that. So what he did was get in touch with David Hepworth, who was really the main guy there from the BBC. And Hepworth decides to say, you know what, let's get the, let's get these donations up. Let's give them a postal code. And Bob Geldof drops the F-bomb and says, no, 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 let's give them the phone numbers. Gee, Joe, don't you wish you had that piece of audio? Why, I do. Here it is. The F word is now used, you know, on television constantly all the time. But when Bob used it, everybody was like, I mean, it was, it really did shock people. And it really got everybody's attention. And here's the numbers. Let's we go through the way. No. We're probably going to get the address let's just, first, aren't we? No, let's the address. Let's get the numbers. Because <laughs> that's how we're going to get it. Now you say... Did donations go up after that? You bet they did, on an average of $300 per minute. What? As a matter of fact, donations went up again. Geldof and a few of the people who were in charge of this weren't high on showing a lot of pictures of starving people because yes. they thought it would bring the audience down. Well, David Bowie said nope. He dropped his final song and showed a Columbia, not Columbia, pardon me, Canadian broadcasting system. Every time I see CBC, I'm trying to turn it into CBS. Right. He showed this video created by the Canadians of starving children. Mm -hmm. And again, per minute, the donations went up. In case you're wondering, the largest single donation was by a fellow by the name of Rashid bin Saeed Al Maktoum. He was part of the Dubai ruling family, and he gave one million dollars as long oh, as he could, wow. as long as he could, talk to Bob Geldof himself. Really? You betcha. Now we got to play a song. Most people know the story that Phil Collins played at both of these. Mm -hmm. He played early in Heathrow. They helicoptered him. Not Heathrow. I've, I've gotten this backwards. He played at um, the concert in London. They then helicoptered him to Heathrow Airport. Right. He got on the Concorde. The Concorde took three and a half hours to get to Philadelphia. Yeah. And then he played again. They, they helicoptered him and he, he played again. To which you say, well, that's a neat story. Oh, it goes more than that. While he was on the Concorde, he ran into Cher, who happened to be on the Concorde. And he, she said, well, where are you going to America for? And he says, well, I'm playing in this Live Aid. Cher had no idea about it. None. Go, what? No idea it was happening. I mean, that's a little bit insulated, but she said she knew nothing about it. So what he did was get her on his helicopter, <laughs> flew her in. Uh -huh. And if you watch, it's easy to find on the YouTube device. If you watch the final um, Feed the World uh, get together in Philadelphia, yeah. Cher is on stage in the chorus. Oh, I love it. So here you go. Phil Collins, I believe, don't hold me to this, but I believe this one's in Philadelphia. Oh, it's in, it's in the air tonight on Rock School. Fail, Lord, isn't it? But this is the other song that I know on the piano.
For the last break and I still have a lot of information to tell you we're gonna finish up with the Boomtown Rats because one of the things that I wondered was I know Bob Geldolf is in charge of this but did Bob Geldolf perform did the Boomtown Rats perform and they do so the last song is gonna be that I think I already told you about Paul McCartney having trouble with his microphone this thing with ABC where they were trying to record one group and not the other one they completely missed the Crosby Stills Nash and Young reunion so that was screwed up whoops da, 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 da. it says here that you too a lot of people are of the opinion that you too sort of came alive with Sunday Bloody Sunday at Red Rocks. A lot of people think no, it was at U2 that or pardon me, it was at Live Aid because that's the national, not national, worldwide audience and all of that. The Who's reunion, they got together after three years, a fuse was blown <laughs> and the feed got cut. So you saw them start my generation, then something went bad. And then they came back and you heard them finish Pinball Wizard and that was it. The I know I'm just listing, but the Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me performance of George Michael and Elton John, that happened at Live Aid. Madonna played in 95 Degree Heat but said, I'm not taking off anything today. You probably remember this from the last Rock School show. Her pictures... When she posed nude previous yes. to becoming a star, yes. the week previous to this showed up uh, in Playboy. Bob Dylan breaks a guitar string, and when he does, Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones gives him his guitar and then stands behind him playing air guitar. <laughs> Teddy Pendergrass, and that's about it, Teddy Pendergrass appears for the first time since an accident in 1982, Aww. which paralyzed him from the neck down. He yeah. sang along with Ashford and Simpson and performed Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand. To which you say, Joe, where'd you get all of these songs? Because if you look, there's no Live Aid record. Where, what? All they had was a four-disc DVD. And a lot of people, including Led Zeppelin, because the three remaining Led Zeppelin members got together and Phil Collins played the drums for them. Yeah. When they got together, they hated it. Uh, the guitar was out of tune. The vocals were scratchy. So they said, nope, it doesn't go on the DVD. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And by the way, the DVD is out of print. I had to grab all of these from YouTube and other videos. That's where I got them. So it's all done. Grand awareness, but $127 million, which a lot of money, but I would consider mm, less than what we wanted. Mm -hmm. Know what I'm saying? Yeah. And failure to do uh, exactly what they wanted to do with that money. Exactly. And the warlord in Ethiopia getting in the way. There's real good. There's real bad. 
And now you know as much as I can tell you of the story of Live Aid. Next week, something else that happened in July. That'll do it. I'm Joe Burns. I'm Tammy Burns. That's it. Class is dismissed. That's the comment.